Sustain, a journal of fair trade, resilient rural communities, safe food, and a healthy environment. Brought to you by IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. This edition of Radio Sustain is for Friday, September 11th, 2009. I'm Andrew Ranallo at IATP in Minneapolis. Today on the program, Brother David Andrews discusses the international need for human rights to food and water. Wayne Roberts explains the value of food policy councils in promoting civic support for sustainability. And finally, we sit down with filmmaker Anna Joannis to discuss her new documentary, Fresh. Right to food and water seems obvious to many, but efforts to establish these rights at the international level are still taking place. Brother David Andrews has held numerous UN meetings with the goal of defining a clear relationship between rights bearers, those with rights to food and water, and duty bearers, those charged with making sure those needs are met. By establishing goals and clear expectations, Brother Andrews is confident the United Nations is making real strides. He sat down with Radio Sustain's Ben Lilliston to talk about the Human Rights Council's current developments and the changing role of the United States. You talked about the Right to Food meeting that you held. You've also been involved in Right to Water efforts. Yes. What's yeah. the power and importance of establishing these rights at the international level? The rights are important in that they also have allied responsibilities. So there are rights bearers who are citizens, and there are duty bearers who generally are governments or administrative units within governments. And so it means that you as a hungry person having the right to food have a government body that's responsible for making sure that you have something to eat. And there are around the world uh, two billion people who lack adequate access to water. And so a rights approach says that there is someone charged with making sure that you have that right met. And the duty bearers then can be held responsible in a court of law for making sure that the human rights are met. So it's very, very important and it should provide every person in the world a opportunity to go having their basic needs met. Looking forward, what do you see as the opportunities to advance the right to food and, and right to water within the UN system? There are always opportunities with a interested group of member states. One of the reasons why there is a United Nations is to meet about and satisfy the fundamental needs of human beings. And so now we have these Millennium Development Goals, which at the United Nations means that within 15 years we're supposed to have hunger. This is the year of water. There are goals set. So it's very important to have goals institutionalized within the United Nations and a timeline for meeting those goals and a mechanism for asking the question, why haven't we met these goals? Now I think now more than ever the global community is embarked upon doing more than preach, but to make sure that they implement it. 
the U.S. is an important U.N. member, and there's been a recent change in administrations here. What differences do you think that's made on the U.N. system? Well, I think the United Nations delegates have strong interest in seeing which way the U.S. is going to go in terms of U.N. policy. I could see that by the level of interest member states brought to the discussion on the right to food when we had our men from uh, Congress speaking there. So you can see that the U.S. is positioning itself to be more of a positive actor. They've now put the name on the list of potential candidates to be elected to the Human Rights Council. In the past, they took their name off that list and were not interested. Now they're interested in being a member of the Human Rights Council. So you can see that they want to be a more positive force and a more engaging partner with other countries around the world rather than being kind of the dominant force that tries to dictate what it will have by way of policy. Thanks very much. Great. You're welcome. Bye. I can't forget the day, baby, you walked away. Can't forget the day, mommy, you walked away. Can't forget the day that you walked away When you come back next time, here to stay That's the reason I'm telling you, Mama, you're losing now Well, it was early one morning if you come dragging home As Wayne Roberts explains it, almost all governmental bodies have to deal with food and food policy on a regular basis, but none carry the responsibility fully. As a project coordinator for the Toronto Food Policy Council, Roberts has seen the council's value in promoting a local, sustainable food system. We sat down with Roberts to get the scoop on why the investment in a food policy council is a sound decision for any city. Can you tell us, what is a food policy council? Well, it's a simple uh, set of words, but the first thing about it is it says food. And uh, most things that you see in government don't ever mention the word food, and you could go up and down any government office, you'll see there's nutrition and safety. And then there's all sorts of departments in government that deal with things like garbage, which is about one third related to food, but they don't ever say they have a food thing. And then transportation, even though 20% of car trips are uh, usually to buy food in a city, they're not called the food access department or anything like that. So food is the first word of a food policy council. We try to deal with food like the whole enchilada, as it were all the things put together. And our belief is when you put it all together, the transportation and the access and the farming and the garbage, you get way better solutions than when you think about it in terms of parts. Could you describe how the Toronto Food Council works? How many members and how they reach decisions or identify priorities? Sure, I think the Toronto Food Policy Council is one of the oldest of the councils. It was started in 1990. And uh, we have 30 members who are all citizens and all volunteer to be on it. And they are usually expert in one way or another, usually as a result of experience, in almost every food problem that we have in the city and in almost every solution. So you can't get on if you're only about a problem. You also got to be about a solution. So maybe somebody who works in a food bank, somebody who works in an alternative agriculture, somebody who's into community gardening, so that the city has access to the best intelligence there is in the city on any problem related to food. And my job is to manage them. <laughs> what are some of the big projects that you guys are working on right now? 
Well, the city of Toronto, along with about 140 cities around the world, have made commitments to do something dramatic around global warming and reducing the global warming emissions. There's the better part of $10 million over the next five years has been dedicated to things that are somewhat food-related that do that. And community gardening and support for all sorts of backyard gardening and a variety of things like that are right up there because they all dramatically reduce the distance that food travels. We're very involved in a big project in the city right now to expand the kinds of foods that you can get on the street. Part of what we're about is to say food should be celebrated, it should be public, it should not just be a private thing, you, you in the supermarket. It's a place where you should know the farmer and know your neighbors as you're doing it. So we're big into anything that promotes that. We're very big into promoting farmers markets, community fresh food markets for people who are on lower income. They still get fresh food and in a sort of market atmosphere. And rooftop gardens. One-sixth of the space of almost every city in North America is flat roofs, so they're just waiting to have that adaptation made to them. I think a lot of urban areas in North America and the United States certainly are looking at local food systems and how do we build it and become part of this. So what would be your advice to a a city as to why they should develop a food policy council? The interesting thing about a food policy council is I try to do as little as possible. That is, we try to initiate partnerships and get other people to think in ways of opportunities that they never had before. So you mentioned local food, which is the really exciting trend of today. We actually try to couple local and sustainable in the same way that we say peanut butter and jam, macaroni and cheese, research and development, you should say local and sustainable. So we're concerned with the uh, animal treatment, we're concerned with the treatment of workers on farms, we're not just the distance that the food travels. And we helped uh, establish a nonprofit called Local Food Plus, which has now become the continent's leading uh, certifier of local and sustainable food. And they both certify the farmers and help them find markets. So. We now have the biggest local and sustainable food purchasing project in the world at University of Toronto, 80,000 students. So we're putting millions into the local economy and supporting the green belt around Toronto, which is the largest green belt in the world. And farmers can't sustain it unless they're making a living. So you can't have local food unless you've got local farmers. You can't have local farmers if they're all broke. So <laughs> that's sort of how our logic model goes. And uh, But we're not doing it, we're just providing an atmosphere that's enabling others to make this very obvious thing happen. Is there an economic case for food policy councils? Well, I like to argue, uh, whenever I hear a city councilor saying, well, it's a great idea to have a food policy council, but we can't afford it, that food policy councils make money or save money for cities. Either we're bringing new foundation money into the city or we're identifying savings, like what we now call garbage that could be composted and actually sold as a resource or or its costs recovered. We're uh, reducing unnecessary uh, suffering that's associated with being on low uh, income and giving uh, kids an opportunity that they otherwise would never have had and might have end up costing the people two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars a year for reform school. So we're saving money every day. In my opinion, there's not a city that can't afford not to have a food policy council. Thanks very much. Thank you. Let them down
Like many, filmmaker Anna Joannis was doubtful her individual efforts towards sustainable living could really make a difference. But through the lens in her new documentary, Fresh, she was able to find, examine, and celebrate the new wave of farmers, thinkers, and businesses that are not only living sustainably, but changing the face of the American food system. Tell us how you came up with the idea for this movie, Fresh. Several years ago, I just finished my last documentary, Generation Meds, and I had been sitting on these articles from The New Yorker. There was a three-part article on global warming, and I didn't want to read it because I felt like I knew the issues, and why would I want to make myself feel worse, like scared and guilty, and eventually I read them, and I felt it was so shocking to me that I could, you know, be so privileged and living in such a wealthy country and not do something about this incredibly scary thing that we were creating, you know, it was like such a dire situation and yet here I was just sitting, like kind of closing my eye to it because it was too overwhelming. And what I realized is that I was closing my eye to it because it felt like the problem was so complex and so big that my individual action was meaningless. It didn't matter whether I would stop driving or switch light bulbs or or recycle, that it was meaningless considering a million new people in China might be driving tomorrow. It was easier to just kind of tune it off and I felt like in general the doom and gloom of our media kind of made me feel helpless and hopeless and that it paralyzed me. But I also knew, I guess, uh, in a way that we were not just observer of our world, that we are creating the reality in which we live. I mean, there's, it can't be otherwise, right? I mean, we are part of the world. so. I felt like I needed to regain that sense that my action mattered, that I was part of the world and that I should feel a sense of responsibility towards what's happening. And what I found out was that people were doing just really unbelievable things in energy, in technology, in architecture and in food. There were just all these beautiful people and beautiful initiatives that were very inspiring and very hopeful and made me want to participate. And slowly I started focusing on food because food is such a great jumping point to talk about all of these issues, the economy, the environment, our health. It was just the kind of natural focus for my documentary. What is, what's the main message that you want audiences to leave the film from? What do you, what do you want them to get out of this? Kind of what I said at the, you know, my first answer, I'd like people to realize that their action really truly matter. That our individual action and certainly our collective action has tremendous potential to change our reality, to shape our reality, not only change it, but to shape it. It's not only about reacting against something, but it's about creating something different. And we are in a really amazing time. You know, yes, the local food market is very small, but it's also incredibly vibrant and it's spreading really, really fast. And who knows when we'll reach a tipping point? Who knows when we'll have enough people to actually radically change the way we grow and distribute and think about food and all the other things related to it, you know, creating vibrant economies again, you know, in a time when the economy is so troublesome. Who knows what it's gonna take now to create very strong alternative economies that is not dependent on Wall Street. So. I think I want people to come out thinking, okay, I care about these issues, I care about feeding myself and my family healthy, safe food, I care about taste, I care about whatever the issue is that they care about, 
and what I do is actually gonna have an impact. How exciting! And there are people in my community that are already doing it. I don't have to reinvent the wheel. I can just find an organization that is doing this work and just join their effort. I can work in my school board, you know, to affect the way my child eats. Or I can go and talk to my council members. Or I can, you know, patronize the right restaurants or patronize a co-op or a supermarket that actually chooses to sell local food. You know, for people to realize that it's not all or nothing, that it could be just a few dollars a week, it could be just one action, and that really, again, like we're not talking about some radical change in who they are or what they do. It's just little things that make a huge difference. Great. Thanks very much. Thank you. Radio Sustain is a project of IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Find us on the web at iatp.org. Radio Sustain is produced by Ben Lillison. Radio Sustain's engineer is Patrick Sai. The music on the program was Tall Fiddler by Deo, You Losing Out by The Two Gallants, Psychotic Girl by The Black Keys, and Lucky Lemmings by Gospel Gossip. I'm Andrew Ranallo. Thanks for listening.